Let's go to the Lord now together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, your word richly reminds us of your presence and your return. Those who are in your presence are blessed. And we are blessed because in our gathering, we remind one another and we proclaim to the world your presence and your return. Your presence is made apparent in our affection for one another. Your presence is made apparent in our care for one another. Father, help us to be more aware of your presence through putting away any compromise we have in our lives. We confess the compromises we have made with this world. Father, forgive us. We have let the desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life have a place in our hearts. And if we are struggling to see where we have loved the world more than you this week, then have mercy on us and open our eyes so that we can see where we have fallen short and so we can be saved from it. Lord, our enemy is crafty and tells us that we are good and have no sin. But we know from your word that to say we have no sin means that we do not have the truth. Thank you, God, that when we confess our sin and repent, then we are made pure and fit for your presence. Lord, we come to you on behalf of those who are sick in our congregation. We praise you and we thank you for the progress made in John and Jordan Schrock's health. We ask that you would complete that improvement. Give them the physical and emotional endurance they need. And we pray the same for Bud and Pam Griffith. We thank you for the improvement in their health. Bring them through this illness and let their hope be set firmly on you through it all. For others in our congregation, Lord, suffering from various illness and pain, we ask that you would give them clarity on how to manage their physical health where there isn't clarity on the cause. Let any pain or suffering call to mind the hope that we have in you. Even as our bodies decay, you are healing us from the disease of sin in our hearts. And Lord, we pray on behalf of those with other needs they are facing. Many have housing needs, employment needs, transportation needs, other needs of all kinds. So we ask that those would be provided. We recognize that it all comes from your generous hand. Keep us from anxiety about the things of this world, knowing that you have secured eternal salvation for us. You will provide us what we need here. Father, we pray for Temple Philadelphia and for their pastor, Marcel Yanogo. Keep him in good health. Give him many more years of service to you and to your people. Let the people of that church be a bright light of your holiness in that community. And we pray for here, Salem First Baptist and their pastor, Mark Hankey. Grant Mark endurance and service and unwavering commitment to being used by you to shape your people. Give that church a devotion to your word and a desire to grow in faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for the warning contained in the passage we will hear preached today. The warning is relevant and gives us much opportunity to examine our lives for its application. Help us to heed the warning and not close our ears to it. Help our brother Hans as he delivers it, that your Holy Spirit would give his words power to reveal and change our hearts. You will return and you will divide those who have been allegiant to you and those who have not. We long to be found faithful on that day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can have a seat.
You can open your Bibles to Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And while you're getting your notes and Bible prepared, I just want to thank you all uh, for the many of you in this church that have been praying for those that uh, have been sick or having difficulty in life right now. Uh, I just want to encourage you that the Lord hears your prayers. I have been very encouraged as a brother in Christ to hear your prayers and then to see the Lord work in them and answer them. So thank you for being a praying church. Well, this morning we find ourselves in Revelation 2, 18 through 29, and I want you to think about a word for a moment. Think about the word tolerance. Tolerance. When you hear that word, what do you think of and what are the feelings that are elicited? Are they positive? Are they negative? Maybe what comes rushing to mind is the picture of the coexist or the tolerance bumper stickers that are so prevalent in Oregon. Perhaps some training that you've had to undergo at work comes rushing back to memory. Language has always been somewhat fluid and words change, but this word, tolerance or tolerate, this word and its etymology is especially curious. To tolerate something comes from the idea of enduring something negative or painful or wrong. It insinuates that the thing which was being endured was negative, and to tolerate it, therefore, is wrong. In its evolution as a word, however, it's become something far different, in fact, the exact opposite. The spirit of the age now uses this word tolerance or tolerate as a synonym to the positive words accept and embrace. But that same spirit of the age, it dictates when and how to use it and when and how is to be intolerant. But the word tolerate can't exist alone. It must always be paired with that which is being tolerated. It is only then that we are able to judge whether something should indeed be tolerated or not. For example, if a person approaches you and says, I have learned to tolerate my roommate's snoring, you might think, well, that's unfortunate, but it makes sense. That's understandable. But if that same person comes to you and says, I have learned to tolerate my roommate's addictive habit that may kill them, we may instead think, well, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound productive or fruitful for either of you. In fact, it sounds enabling unloving, and probably destructive. There's always an innate judgment that goes with the word tolerate. To tolerate is to judge as annoying, but unharmful. But what we will find in our text this morning is that to tolerate that which is proclaimed as sinful by God, that is to foolishly invite the righteous judgment of God. And when this is the case, not only does tolerance become enablement, it becomes complicity. And what we'll find in this mini letter to the church at Thyatira is that Jesus was not pleased, not pleased at all, with their tolerance of sin and false teaching in their midst. He was so displeased that he threatens to bring judgment upon this small church if they do not repent. And he instead exhorts them to hold fast against compromise. And so this is what I've entitled the sermon this morning, a word to the church at Thyatira, hold fast against compromise. Hold fast 
against compromise. Let's begin this morning by reading through Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18, and then we'll break it down and unpack it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. As with other many letters, we've grown accustomed to first seeing a salutation, a salutation, an opening in which the writer of the letter, the true writer, Jesus, through an angel, through John, writes to the angel of the church. And here what we see is it's from the reigning son of God, the reigning son of God. Thyatira is the fourth of the seven churches. It's the longest, as you can see in your Bible, of the many letters. And in it, we see a summation of the situations faced by the churches thus far. It's almost as if it's a bit of a hinge letter of the two sections of three on either side. A call to endurance like Smyrna. We see an idea of uh, this call to faithfulness that was there at Pergamum. And we see a call to witness as at Ephesus. In other words, it receives some focused attention from Jesus. And this is a little bit odd because of all seven, commentators agree that this was most likely the smallest and probably most insignificant church of the seven. And so it comes as a bit of a surprise when we're presented with a salutation that says that they have drawn the attention of the Son of God. Now, there's no higher position except for God the Father himself. But such is the love and careful shepherding of Christ, that even the smallest and most significant of his flock receive his attention. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Dear friends, Christ cares about you, no matter how insignificant you think you are. He cares about this church, even though we are definitely not a megachurch. He cares about each of his kids within his body, just as he cared about the saints enduring at the church in Thyatira. When you are told by the accuser that you are not worthy of his care, remind him of this story, that Thyatira even deserved his care. 
The church of Thyatira needed that care, for it was in the midst of an economic center there in the city that was tightly connected to the trade guilds that we've been discussing thus far. And the expected idea of the trade guilds was that people would worship pagan gods as part of their membership in the local commerce and trade. A little bit different than today. You go down to the chamber of commerce and they've got temple prostitution, right? A little bit different. But that's what it was, basically. You would go and you would participate in these pagan feasts. And this was a heavily commercialistic city. Archaeological inscriptions have been found for guilds of wool workers and linen workers and makers of outer garments and dyers and leather workers and tanners and potters and bakers, slave traders and bronze smiths. Now, Lydia, who was a believer that assisted Paul in Philippi, was mentioned in Acts 16 as being from Thyatira and being a dyer of things that were purple. This was a commercialistic city. And it would have been difficult then for this small band of Christian believers with as little pull as they had to stand firm in their convictions and allegiance to Christ instead of to the trade guild gods. To give in would have made their lives far easier to listen to this pagan worship and to delve into it with one foot in the world as Nick talked about last week and one foot with Christ. Well, that would have been easier, but the reality is, is you can't do that. There is no such thing. And so this is where the imagery that Jesus uses to introduce himself comes in. All of the phrases here, all three of them, son of God, eyes like a flame of fire and feet of burnished bronze, take our minds back to the book of Daniel that we looked at in the vision of Christ from Revelation 1. Remember the salutations look back to chapter 1. And there in Daniel, specifically in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, we see this same figure. Daniel lifts up his eyes and looks and sees this man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. And notice that as you go down, it says his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs, which includes his feet, like the gleam of burnished bronze. The same figure is here in Revelation, one who is powerful in his authority over the nations and has the ability to help his people conquer them. But then the phrase son of God also is used in Daniel 3 in the space where Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing down in allegiance to a pagan God, an image of a pagan God. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar says there in that story. He says that he looks and he sees four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This idea of a son of a god is a very high authority, a high being. And so all these images are brought back into mind as the reader reads Revelation, as we look at Revelation. And for those Christians, even in that day, acquainted with this very memorable Old Testament story, I don't know if you guys find this, but even non-believers in the world who've never been to a Bible study in their life know the story of Daniel in the lion's den and of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And so this spoken tradition would have come along to these first century Christians and it would recall to mind the powerful nature of God and his ability to help his true people stand firm even in the midst of great tribulation. And it's the same God that helped those three Hebrews emerge untouched from the fire that would help the church at Thyatira emerge from the trials of this life into eternity. And it's the same God, dear friends, that will help you and I walk through the fires that we encounter in this life. But the imagery speaks further. It speaks not only to his role as savior and protector that stands in the fire with us, but also his role as judge. 
This is seen in the eyes like flames of fire. There's this fearsome image when you think about it. Fire has the ability to terrorize when it brings destruction or comfort when it wards off the cold. Similarly, the fire of Christ's gaze into our minds and hearts will either cause us to be drawn to him in loving embrace or it will cause us to step away from him in fear of destruction and his righteous indignation. Now he proclaims just a few verses later in the latter half of verse 23 that he is one that searches mind and heart with these eyes of fire and will give to all based on their deeds. For the converted follower of Christ, his eyes of judgment and conviction are welcomed. Amen? Because it will bring voluntary repentance when sin is revealed. We, we appreciate this ability of his. But for the unconverted, the sword of his word that we heard about in the prophetic word to Pergamum will bring righteous judgment because of the rebellion, the hardness of heart, and the unwillingness to repent. This is further enforced by the core scripture of the Old Testament that references this title, Son of God. We heard it earlier in Psalm 2. It was the scripture Jesus and his apostles often used to describe him. And we're going to revisit this at the end of the micro letter, but this idea of a righteous judge who will destroy wickedness is present throughout this micro letter. Now, I wonder if in our appropriate desire and good desire to tell people about the goodness and mercy of our God, we have too quickly dismissed his righteous judgment. We have too quickly dismissed that he is a God and a judge to be rightly feared. Friends, do you have a balanced view of him? As a loving father that welcomes you with his hands and his arms that won't harm you, but also balanced with the idea that he is one to be feared if you walk in wickedness. Because if you have that balanced view and you walk in ongoing repentance, not perfection by any stretch, otherwise we wouldn't need Christ, but ongoing repentance as sin is revealed in your life, if you have that, that balanced view, then you need not fear his wrath. But for those who are persecuted in his name by the unrepentant sin around us, like those at Thyatira, there is great comfort in the feet of burnished bronze and in the flaming eyes of fire. These feet of burnished bronze are used throughout the Old Testament to speak of his wrath. Here's an example in Isaiah 63, 6. I trampled down the people in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is a God that is not to be messed with. Jesus will use these feet of burnished bronze that have stood in the fire, faithful to those that are his, that are also in the fire. He'll use these same feet to trample down the wicked. This one true son of God is a fierce judge who will either be seen as a protector or a destroyer. The idea of shepherd is very innately present here and even in that section from Psalm 2. If you were a wolf, a shepherd was to be feared because his job was to kill you. If you were a lamb, then his job was to protect you. This is the God that we serve. And luckily for those in Thyatira that were his true people, they will see the protector. And it is to them that he gives a commendation. A commendation. 
He says to them, you have grown in sanctified witness. He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In our English language, we look at works and we think, oh, this is speaking of them doing works of service or works of activism. Now, this is an amazing commendation, but that's not what it means. In their acting out of their faith, their orthopraxy, if you will, their practice of orthodoxy, they exhibit love and faith and service and patient endurance. The combination of these words throughout Revelation speak not just to random acts of kindness, not just to activism in the midst of social justice, but instead, in actuality, what it speaks to is works that witness to God's rule in their life. Remember, friends, this is the job of the church. The job of the church, as we looked at in depth with Ephesus, is to act as a lampstand, a witness to the glory and reign of God. Friends, remember that the good news of Scripture is that Jesus died for our sins. Amen? Amen. That he forgave us. Amen? Amen? And he paved the way for us to be with him in eternity. Amen? Amen? That is the good news. But it is also that he reigns now over his people, the church, by his spirit. And it is by our obedience, empowered by his Holy Spirit, that we will work out our salvation in works that speak to the fact that he reigns over us. This is good news too, amen? Amen. It is good news that I am not my own, that I am purchased, that I am a slave of Jesus Christ. That is good news. That language in today's world, people will say, that's not good news. So when the world asks us, why do we act? Why do we do the works that we do? We can proclaim that it is because we have been purchased by and serve Jesus Christ, our King. And so when you see this phrase, good works throughout the New Testament, it is not speaking of works of service or works of activism just for kindness sake. It is certainly those, but it is for the purpose of declaring who our King is not because we think we're going to fix the world. It is speaking of any and all actions in our life that point back to the fact that Jesus is reigning in our lives. And it is by knowing and obeying his rule in our lives, again, not perfectly, but every time there is conviction stepping into that conviction, it's by doing this that we proclaim to the world around us that we are his people and he is our God. These do not bring us grace These do not bring us salvation or forgiveness, but they are an implication of the grace and forgiveness that we have already been freely given by him without cost to us. And that is what the very thing for which this church was commended, that their witness was a lampstand that pointed others to the fact that Christ was amongst them, that he ruled over them. And even further, their active witness did not taper off. It did not go downhill over time as it had at Ephesus. Remember, the church at Ephesus was commended for their works of witness, but as time went on, their love, their witness, tapered off. At Thyatira, their latter works of witness, even in the midst of suffering, exceeded their first works. And this growth spoke of sanctification of these loyal few. I wonder what Christ would say to mission fellowship after 10 years? Would he say that our works of witness are being sanctified and increasing as time has gone on? Or are we like Ephesus, 
where the flame of passion within us has slowly flickered out. What about your personal walk with him? What would he say there? Have you increased in your passion? Is your urge to proclaim his lordship in your life stronger or weaker than before? And friends, don't go with what you feel. Feelings always deteriorate. Go with your convictions. Have your convictions increased to willingly proclaim that Jesus is your Lord? If they have tapered off, then this morning is a wonderful time to ask him to reignite the passion of his gospel in your life. These questions are important to ponder. They were important for Thyatira to ponder, and they're important for us to think through. For the church at Thyatira had begun to allow something in its midst that would ruin this commendable witness. And I fear that many churches fall into the same category today. And we are not so strong that we could easily avoid this. We must know it. We must know the warning that Jesus delivers next. A warning. You tolerate false teaching that leads to compromise. Let's read verses 20 and 21 again. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You tolerate this woman Jezebel. Tolerance is good, right? That's obviously the connotations here. I mean, all teaching, all doctrine, all theology, all religion leads up the mountain to paradise, right? That's what the spirit of the age will tell you. But friends, this is wrong. It is so very eternally and destructively wrong. To give someone some false directions to get to the place they're going, they probably will eventually get there because they'll go around the entire world and eventually end up where they're supposed to go. But friends, leading people in the wrong direction when it comes to the authority and reign of Jesus Christ is to lead them into eternal destruction. To believe that there are multiple ways that lead to eternal life and to reconciliation with the God we've sinned against is to believe and to know that you have blatantly, blatantly accepted and bought into the deception of the father of lies. It's to admit it. For the gospel of Jesus Christ requires exclusivity. If it is not exclusive, dear friends, it is not the gospel. If it's not exclusive, it's not the gospel. Notice that Christ begins with, I have this against you. And this is the judge that we just looked at will destroy the wicked with a rod of iron wielded as if it's against fragile pottery. That image is meant to evoke something in us, healthy fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But why was this woman Jezebel and her teaching so dangerous? Well, unfortunately, we don't have enough information right here in the immediate text to tell us. And so there are various theories about what is meant by using this imagery of the Old Testament villain of Queen Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab. 
There are two main ideas or theories uh, if you compile all the ideas. And the first is the idea that this represented a literal singular person in the church. And she would have been a part of the church or else they wouldn't have asked her to repent. But she said that she was a person who had been given this extreme gnosis, this knowledge that no one else had. And so she was a prophetess that was starting to tell people this hidden knowledge. And so it could have been a female prophet in the church or a leader, a deacon. It could have been an elder's wife or simply a woman in the church teaching what she should not be teaching. But another idea, the second theory is that It's far more figurative, and it could have been standing in for leadership and the church as a whole, that the majority of the church had actually drifted completely off track. And this idea originates from a similar use of figurative language in John's second epistle to the church, in which he begins it this way. He says in that tiny little letter, he says, the elder, that's himself, John, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. This salutation to the elect lady was a way to smuggle the letter to the church in persecution. A Roman official who was a pagan would have seen it as a letter to an individual when it was actually addressing the bride of the local church and the members within it. And so John could be using similar language of Jezebel and her followers as children here in Revelation. We don't know for sure. Whichever one or combination of the two is true, we can be certain of a few things where John is reaching back into the Old Testament and pulling into conscious thought ideas so that the church of Thyatira is confronted with their tolerance and their compromise. First, Jezebel was an infamous character from the Old Testament during a time where her husband Ahab was king of Israel. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon named Ethbaal, a name that meant near to Baal. Their family was very, very strong in Baal worship. And contrary to the very clear words of God to Israel in the Torah that commanded that they, especially their kings, steer clear of women that worship foreign pagan false gods, Ahab compromised. Oh, it's okay. I know that, I know that she's not really that much of a follower of Yahweh, but it's all right. It'll be okay. He married her. And she quickly brought Baal worship into Israel and syncretized it with Yahweh worship, even placing an altar to Baal in northern Israel, in the area of Tel Dan. You can read about her on your own this week in 1 Kings 16 through 21. Write that down. Go read that this week. 1 Kings 16 through 21. The prophet Elijah was commissioned by God to prophesy against Jezebel and her husband Ahab. And additionally, she becomes the poster girl, if you will, of sexual and spiritual adultery. Throughout scripture, the covenant people of God are seen as the intimate wife of God, Israel as God's wife in fullness, and the church as Christ's bride to become fully one. And as with any marriage, there was an expectation of exclusive intimacy. This image is used throughout scripture in the positive. And this is why marriage is given to us as humans. It's a common grace that says, look, I'm a God that's exclusive with you. Is it any wonder that Satan tries to destroy marriages and tries to destroy sexuality and gender? Is it any wonder that Satan goes after these things? Because in so doing, he will slowly but surely get a people who aren't paying attention to say, oh, sex shouldn't be exclusive. Oh, marriage, that can be open. Ah, gender, that doesn't matter. God's not the one that created it. We do. Friends, it's already happened. (laughs) It's not something to happen. It's already happened. 
And so this idea that Scripture gives us, it, it truly is seen as archaic, exclusive marriage. But that idea was positive. But then when Israel allows idolatry in their midst and pagan compromised, they're pictured as adulterous. And this is the imagery of what this figure portrayed as Jezebel in Revelation is promoting within the church at Thyatira. You don't need to be exclusive to Jesus. First and foremost, she is promoting activity that is blatantly against the commands of God's word. She is encouraging the people to participate in pagan worship by eating food sacrificed to idols and participating in temple prostitution and orgies that were a common outcome of pagan feasts in the Roman world. As with Pergamum, this was a kind of <clears throat> antinomianism or hyper anti-law stance. We are saved by grace, she would say. So we can do whatever in the body and it only enhances God's grace. And friends, this was not and is not a foreign idea in circles that proclaim Christianity. Throughout the 2000 year history of the church, errant cult after errant cult has arisen proclaiming that the more one sins, the greater the, the displays of the grace of Christ. Friends, this is why ministries to those who are constantly in sin are seen as so amazing. We're going to have a conquering service, right? All of you who sin during the week, let's pray for God's conquering. And everybody rejoices. And then they go out and do it again the next week. Why? So that Sunday we can do it again. We're overcomers because we sinned this week and now we're overcoming on Sunday. Guys, you might as well be Catholic. And go sin all week like all of my schoolmates did in college. And then guess what they did on Saturday? They went into confession and yeah, they were fine the next day, Right? Now, there have been groups that proclaim that to truly understand the hidden knowledge, the hidden gnosis of God's deep grace, one must plumb the depths of sin and wickedness to understand. And it's this idea that Jesus is sarcastically impugning when he refers to the deep things of Satan. He's actually switching it around. They would have referred to it as the deep things of God. There in verse 24. Now, Paul clearly deals with this idea of cheap grace when he says this in Romans 5, 20 through 6, 2, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we might say, great, there it is. Keep sinning that grace may abound. But we forget the next part. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Friends, this same mistake is alive and well today. Many so-called Christians believe that to require obedience is legalism and the opposite of grace. How do I know? Come talk to me. I'll tell you all the stories since I've been a pastor of people who, when I said, you know, you really should walk in obedience, they went, oh, legalism. And worse yet, many Christians who know better are walking not only in this, but in a voluntary naivete, allowing any and all ideologies propagated by the world to influence and guide them. There's a lack of discernment that runs through the church that makes people within it vulnerable to blatant deception. Rather than discerning and defining ideas like love, and justice, and truth, by biblical definition, some like those at Thyatira, blindly accept the definition provided by the world and are even unaware that they do so. 
So I want to ask you this morning, how about you? Where do you get your definitions of love and justice and truth? To love a brother or sister in Christ, friends, is not to accept unrepentance or to enable someone to walk in the midst of error. It is to lovingly speak truth, even as we heard in our reading from Ephesians, so that they might repent. We cannot change the unconverted world. They will go from bad to worse. But we can proclaim the truth through the witness of the church by holding one another accountable to that truth. And Jesus loved that they wanted to love. He loved that they wanted to love but he hated that this view of love had morphed into compromise. Is all love love? The Bible would say absolutely not. This figure Jezebel was leading many willing victims in this church astray through tolerant teaching that combined worldly thought with supposed biblical truth. It bent to the world's demands so that the members would not be uncomfortable but could fit into the pagan and secular world around them. To walk with Christ was and is difficult and uncomfortable, and so they easily accepted the Jezebel-like teaching when it came their way. And for this, judgment would be coming to this church just as it had come for Jezebel. Friends, look at the historical story of Jezebel and how it ended in 2 Kings. She fell out of a tower, and it says that when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Her end was grotesque as prophesied by the man of God. Why? Because wickedness is destructive. It reinforces the separation caused by sin and leaves people far away from their creator God. And so God rightly meets it with destructive judgment. And we'll need to remember this as we go through Revelation. But here it is those within the church at Thyatira that are falling for this errant teaching that promotes wickedness and allegiance to worldly notions and ideas that will be judged. Not only are they practically acting in sexual immorality and idolatry and pagan worship, but this is merely a symbol of the fact that their hearts were already seduced by the worldly worship around them. In verse 22, we see that these people are those who commit adultery with her. And Jezebel's fall will drag all those who believe in her false teaching with her into a sickbed of destruction. Friends, there are some of you here today who tolerate worldly ideologies. You tolerate consumerism and materialism. You tolerate the narcissistic self-adulation of the social media universe. And not only that, you hurriedly run to take part in it. You tolerate humanism and the ideologies that it propagates where humans are naturally good. And if we can just reason with them and educate them enough, humans will be better. You tolerate the therapeutic ideals of the day where everyone is a victim and no one bears responsibility for their own actions because they might have been harmed or oppressed. But friends, when it comes to our relationship to God, there is no excuse. No one is a victim. All of us are sinners, 
deserving the wrath of an almighty and holy God. And we, I, bear responsibility for our actions regardless of how much we justify our sin. But the gospel gives us hope. And it only gives us hope if we paint that background appropriately. It gives us hope not in errant theologies that fail time and time again and simply get repackaged for the next generation who doesn't know their history. But in Christ, it gives us hope because he died in our place. He rose from the dead and he promised to return and restore heaven and earth to an eternal glory. And if we love the people that are so deceived, we will bring this gospel to them rather than allow them to sit in the deception of the enemy. And you, dear friends, if you are indeed a follower of Christ, you are not an evangelist or lampstand of worldly ideologies or politics. You are emissaries of the Most High King Jesus, the Lord and judge of the world who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so we must each ask the question. We must reach deep into our hearts and ask the question in an effort to fit in or be comfortable in this pagan, unbelieving world around me. Have I given in to their ideologies? Have I become complicit? Does what I believe look more like the society around me or counter to it? Have you, have I, bought into this without even knowing it. May the Lord give us conviction and wisdom to see the truth if we have. For the judgment that befell Jezebel is the same that will befall those victims of false teaching in the church at Thyatira and those that will befall the victims in the church today. And this is why he next provides an exhortation. Take heed of judgment and hold fast to the truth. Take heed of judgment and hold fast to the truth. Look at verses 22 through 25. Behold, I will throw Jezebel into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. For all the heaviness of the severity of God's holiness, we are instantly met in this scripture with the immense gravity of God's grace and mercy. For the Lord's judgment, even against this figure, Jezebel, is not immediate. Praise God for that. Amen? God is not hasty in bringing judgment on me when I sin. Praise God. Because I would not be standing here. Praise God for his patient mercy for all of us. And here we are reminded that he gives time for repentance. Because, friends, grace is not an enablement of sin. It is room to repent. Grace is room to repent. But she is unwilling. 
And friends, this is where judgment is required to take place. Because God is gracious to give room to repent, his church should offer the same to one another. Friends, when we act in discipline towards one another, we should come graciously to each other, allowing room to repent. But friends, when there is not repentance, we need to lovingly stand firm and say, you need to repent. And if not, we'll have to continue in discipline. Friends, this is not legalism. This is not mean. This is love. And when we don't view it that way, it is solely because we don't think that sin and hell and wickedness is destructive, as the Bible says. It's okay if my child keeps playing with that electrical outlet. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, that knife that they're holding close to their face? Ah, I'm sure they'll figure it out. We'll trust the Holy Spirit on that one. No, we'll look at that and we'll say, stop, put that down, come back, come over here, let me hold you. This is grace. This is room to repent. When there's an unwillingness to repent, to confess, and to admit what you've done, there should be truthful discipline. And the offer of repentance is given to both Jezebel, this character here, and those who follow her. And if there is no repentance of this spiritual adultery and syncretism with worldly beliefs, God himself will throw them into great tribulation by way of sickness and death. Friends, the very uh, not PC truth that we have to face today is that God uses plagues and pandemics to discipline his world. And this brings tribulation. It isn't a one-to-one thing. We cannot look at someone who has a sickness and say, well, they are therefore being punished. That is not how it works. But when plagues hit at a pandemic level, we have to ask ourselves the question, I wonder if he's getting our attention so that we go to our knees. But that is not PC today. I wish there was more discussion about repentance and less discussion about other things. I'm sure you can fill in the blanks. God sees our minds and hearts, but notice he also judges based on our works. And this is truly where antinomianism or a loose grace gospel is proven heretical. And this often throws Christians for a bit of a loop when we read this, that they will be judged by their works because we've rightly been taught that we are saved by grace through faith, but we wrongly think that it then doesn't matter how you act out your faith or how apathetic you become. And this is the false gospel that has inoculated many Americans, many self-proclaimed Christians in America with antinomianism. But the truth of the Bible is that we have no ability to save ourselves from sin. We are dead in it. Dead people can't make themselves rise to new life. But Christ, by his sacrificial work on the cross, he took our place and paid the price for our sins and then resurrected from the grave because he is God, breaking the power of sin and death. And he then sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts that we too might resurrect from deadness due to sin and instead, live a life for him as his citizens under his rule and reign. And it is in entering into that covenant relationship with Christ and enduring in it by the power of the Spirit that will lead to eternal life. So what is the evidence that you are indeed converted and saved? That's repentance that leads to good works in the name of Christ. And again, don't hear me say perfection. Perfection. Living out a life that declares by your deeds that your allegiance and obedience is to the Lord God. And so while we are not saved by our works, the Bible makes clear that we will be judged by our works. 
as evidence of whether or not we were ever converted in the first place. A faith that does not work its way out in our life to a life of obedience to Christ, again, not perfection, repentance, is no faith at all. This is the point of the book of James, and this will be repeated over and over in Revelation. And to hammer this point home, John recalls to mind Jeremiah 17.10, where God declares that he sees the hearts and minds. Look at it in its fullness on the screen. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is why Jesus said, you can judge a tree by its fruit. John wants us dearly to understand and see that judgment that comes, even amidst the church, when there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin, it's necessary. It's good. It's gracious. Jesus is exhorting the church to take heed of judgment, for judgment from God is a grace that is meant to bring repentance. But then secondly, Christ exhorts the church to hold fast to what you have until I come. One of the major problems with worldly ideologies is that they create a form of hidden knowledge, of Gnosticism, where there are those who hold the hidden knowledge and those that don't. Just think about situations that are going on right now over the last two years. Oh, you don't really understand. Let me give you a few books to read. Then you might understand. There's a hidden gnosis. In order to get in on the knowledge and be the truly educated, you have to read certain books, certain authors, and know certain buzzwords. You even see this in some forms of current so-called Christianity, where there are those that have a special anointing or special understanding of the Bible that others don't. Now, friends, don't hear me as being anti-academic. Any of you that know me for more than five minutes know I love reading, and I want you to read a lot and study a lot. But Christianity, true Christianity, is not in need of that. It's good, but in fact, God did everything possible to provide his truth in the open, out in the light, for anyone to get. Just study how the translation of the Bible went over the centuries. He provided his word through mediators. His son came as the living word. He modeled it. He's protected his word through centuries of persecution. And so we have, dear friends, all that we need right here in our hands. You'll notice that when I preach or Nick preaches or Tyler or Ryan, we may have a comment or two that we pulled from a commentary that we read that you have access to as well about the historical setting. But the vast majority of what we preach comes from the word itself. And the key is to become familiar with your Bible so that you can hold fast to what you already have. Many of you can't hold fast to what you already have because there are entire swaths of the Bible that you avoid. Friends, what areas of the Bible have you ignored? What areas have you not read that you need to step into in faith this week? Many of you are like, ah, man, I just, you know, Obadiah, Mm, I haven't touched that one. Or Habakkuk. Or usually it's in the prophets. Or Ecclesiastes. Or Song of Solomon. (laughs) Right? Go read it. Read it. Don't worry about understanding it. Let it sit. Let the Spirit do his work. What areas of the Bible have you ignored that you need to step into in faith? Read them. Become familiar with them. Know where things are in your Bible, even if you don't understand them. 
Please do that this week. We have through the word of God and apostolic tradition everything we need to know the wisdom of God. We don't need to be given any deeper truth. And so as churchy fads come and go, as worldly fads come and go, don't fall for them, dear friends. There is no further burden that Christ has put on his church than to repent, be baptized, step in a messianic community of faith called the local church and grow in understanding and application of his word. No further burden. When you feel weighed down and you're like, oh man, I've got so many books to read and oh, those guys that preach, oh, they know so much, I gotta catch up to them. No, you don't. Guys, part of the reason that I do this is because I'm in it every day for the last 20 years. I don't have some big brain. I have the same word and the same spirit you do. It takes time and effort. Thank you for allowing me to be able to do that for you. You can do the same. Hold fast to what you have. And if you do, a reward will be waiting. And so he finishes with a reward, ruling with Christ and authority over the nations. We're almost done here. I know I'm going a bit long today. It's a longer passage. <laughs> Look at verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For this tiny church in this somewhat insignificant town, life seemed hard inside the church and out. To remain a faithful Christian was difficult, but the Son of God promises the faithful believers who have not given in to worldly idolatry, but instead continue in faithfully working as a witness of Christ's reign. To them, he says they will one day be victorious over those powers that now seem so difficult to fight against. Friends, Raise your hand if you're tired of fighting against the world. Anybody? Can I get an amen? amen. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm so tired. And I don't say that to elicit anything other than, man, it's good to fight with you all. Not with you all, but against the world with you all. There we go. <laughs> That's what happens when I go off my notes. It's so good to co-labor with you in fighting against the world. And so this book, this uh, micro letter should give us such joy at the fact that one day we will be victorious over those powers that now seem so difficult to fight against. And for the truly converted, this is great hope and relief. The language that John uses here is again from Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9 especially. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The picture here is a bookend to that which was already stated at the beginning of the micro letter in the son of God statement to the church at Thyatira. Friends, what a relief it will be one day when all the ideologies currently causing chaos and propagating lies and foolishness around us will be brought low and destroyed. What a relief it will be when only God's truth reigns. Ah, oh, sit in that for a second. What a relief that will be. Lord, come quickly. If you are anything like me, you often wonder why these lies are afforded such latitude in this world by God to deceive and why he seems to allow them in the church. But friends, in God's amazing sovereignty, he uses these to harden the hearts of the unconverted 
and draw his elect closer to himself and to one another. And it may seem like we are the underdog on most days that the church is clawing its way up the cliff, but one day the truth will rise up like his second image, the morning star. And this phrase will also be used by Jesus to describe himself at the end of the book. But this phrase most likely comes out of the prophetic statement made by Balaam that we looked at last week, who you probably went and read about, in which God prophesies through Balaam, I see him, but not now, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. He prophesied a rising star who will use his scepter to crush the enemies of God's people. And on that cross on Calvary, our King, our Lord, was enthroned in a way that seemed completely foreign to the world, but he died for our sins and he was enthroned over his people. And he started to pull us out of the kingdom of darkness and everyone who is his will know him and follow him because his sheep hear his voice and they follow him into the secure sheepfold of his love. Now, it may seem like God has lost at times, that he is not doing his work. But friends, this is not true. And this is why the church fathers needed to motivate the church with this truth. Peter, in his second letter, chapter one, used this same title to refer to Christ when encouraging the church. And he said in the second chapter, 2 Peter 2, 9, he said this, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. It may seem like God has lost or forgotten about his people, but it is in these times of trial that we must remember that we are more than conquerors through Christ. What is this conquering? Well, we, experiencing, we experience the same conquering spirit every day when we do look at the idolatrous world around us and realize that it has not crushed our spirit that it has not crushed our witness, and that by our very faithfulness in gathering together and making new disciples of Jesus and evangelizing the world around us, we are walking in his works that declare his name boldly. He has not overcome us. The enemy has not overcome us. Praise God, Jesus has brought our hearts to be one with his. And so friends, as we step into communion, I want to encourage you to hold fast to what you have been given. For the Lord is with us in our tribulation and in our fight against compromise, and he will not let us down. And friends, he is coming again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning.